Let's pray, and then uh, we're going to jump into the first Sunday of Advent from Isaiah 64, 1 to 9. Holy Spirit, this is, uh, this is your body. These are your people. And we pray now that you would rule us well. We pray you will fulfill the ministry the Lord Jesus has given to you for his glory that he may put on display the Father, and that is counsel us into your truth, guide us into truth, speak to us and lead us. Give us ears that hear. And give us hands and feet that will be quick to respond. I pray you'd rule my tongue. And make it an instrument of grace to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 64, 1 to 9. First Sunday of Advent. Uh, if, if I were going to put uh, a little bit of a title on top of this, I, I would say hope in the middle of difficulty. And trusting in the Father's coming salvation. Hope in the middle of difficulty and trusting in the Father's coming salvation. I'm going to read Isaiah 64, 1 to 9. And we've got some introductory matters. Um, uh, and, and then we'll, we'll jump into a quick exposition of the text. Oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries. And that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, things we did not look for. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your Ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name. Who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. If you looked at the passages for this Advent, you'll notice that all of these passages carry with them this feel, this sense of asking for, looking for hope in the middle of difficulty and trusting in the Father's coming salvation. And I, I don't want I, I to linger here too long, but I also don't want to overlook it as well. And you're going to see why I'm going to make the statements I'm going to make here in just a moment, because they bear what they need to be said. Never more before in the history of the church in the West have we needed hope in the middle of difficulty. And I'm particularly referencing the events in Ferguson. I put up on the blog this week a link that I hope you went and read. And inside that article there were multiple links to examples. And I hope you paid attention to that. And if not, go back and look at it. I didn't put the notes for this up today because I didn't want to overshadow what is there. I hope you'll go and read it. Darren is a pastor 
in St. Louis. Actually, Emmett and I have read, uh, written in the elevator with him at Desiring God Pastors Conference. It was super awkward. And so it's kind of funny. He was like, that's Darren Patrick. But Hi. And then you kind of look down. Was it you and I, Emmett, that was on the... Yeah, it was you. It was very awkward. But anyway, I like the guy. And, uh, and he had some good points. And I want to be super careful here. Um, but I want you to hear... And I'm just restating what he hit, what he said. And I, I want you to hear it. I want you to go read it. And I'm going somewhere with it, so bear with me. Number one, pay attention. Pay attention. Resist the temptation to ignore what's going on, hoping that it will go away. Make yourself aware. But also make yourself aware about how other people feel about it. Number two. Psalm 139, Lord, you see me and you know me. You know my inward thoughts. You know how I'm put together. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it. With Psalm 139, allow the Lord to shine His light of the gospel on the hidden places of your heart. Those places we don't talk about at parties. Quoting a line from a movie, sorry. Can't help it. Those places that we just don't let bubble up in public but are there. Let the light of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit into those deep places about your fears, your biases, lack of forgiveness, judgment. Pray to that end and then repent as He reveals things. Number three, and this is probably where this gets hard for some of us, is dialogue with someone who may be ideologically different than you. Ask questions. Listen with the intent to be influenced and be willing to go to the hard places. This is probably going to make some people who go into voting voting booth and just check Republican and walk out angry. So I'm sorry, but I'm not. If you're white, consider learning about the concept of majority privilege. You don't know you have it till it's taken away. And I've tasted that firsthand. I wrote about that in the blog. But our children are in here today and I'm not going to say anything about that. And along with that, be careful what you say to your children. And be careful the biases you pass along inadvertently. They are there. They are there. Number five, look for opportunities to show love and serve. And then finally, pray for peace. We've been studying through Ephesians, and what have we learned? The hostile wall of division between Jew and Gentile has been taken down in Christ. It's down. The defenses are down. I have this, when I read that, I'm sorry, because I was raised in the 70s and 80s in the Star Wars. You remember Return of the Jedi? You remember... The deflector shield is down. Commence the attack. You guys remember, right? They got the deflect. The deflector shield is down. The hostile wall of division in Christ has been removed. So my question is, why is there still division? If the wall's been removed, why is there still division? It's not Jesus' fault. Jesus doesn't need to do any more work. Do you understand? I mean, we're studying through Ephesians. We're going to hop back on that after Advent. 
Pray for peace. And I don't mean just the absence of conflict. I mean the reconciling work of the gospel where we don't keep two opposing parties apart, but they come together because we are one body. Do you you understand what I'm saying? Do you feel that? You should. And you should feel a fair amount of tension there because we're not one body. And when I say we, I mean the church, particularly the church in the West. Pray for peace. We're a people who believe the Lord did that. And let's pray that God uses the situation for His glory. I made this statement the other day in Twitter sphere. And I was thinking about the work that we've been able to do in our unreached people group. And as the Lord opened kingdom doors for us through September the 11th, May the Lord open kingdom doors for us through Ferguson. And I'll say more about that in one of the points that we'll draw out of Isaiah 64, 1-9. You see, this difficulty sharpens the focus of our need during this Advent season. Our need and desire that Jesus would return and completely restore the kingdom. See, the challenge of race tensions in our country is a constant reminder. Hear this. It's a constant reminder that the kingdom is still invading long-held enemy territory. And that we really need King Jesus to bring about the obedience of faith among His people so that we would live in Ephesians unity. I expect a failure to understand and I expect animosity among unregenerate people. I don't expect a failure to see and a failure to understand and a failure to empathize among transformed, spirit-filled, Bible-believing, gospel-loving, all-nation-seeking people. And the question I'm asking is not a justice question. I've made more people angry this week as I've posted things on that one. I've caught more crap from people for that statement. The question I'm asking is, why is a black man and a white man who look at the same information come away with two different conclusions, who both are spirit-filled, gospel-loving, Bible-believing people? My question is, why that? That's a deeper question. Because if the wall of division is broken down, and, and we would say we're inerrantists, we believe in the Bible as the inerrant scriptures, it doesn't affirm anything contrary to fact, right? The wall's broken down, then the question is, why can't we see this thing through the same lens of the kingdom of God, not our race? And my hunch is it's a lack of repentance. So Advent couldn't have come at a better time. For us to focus our attention on this season and our need for Jesus to come and fully establish the kingdom. Because that's what Advent is. It is the anticipation of the second coming. We celebrate that He has come. And I'll say more in just a minute. But we are looking forward to Revelation 19 reality where the King returns... And what we've failed to enact in the Great Commission, He completes perfectly. That's what we are longing for. It's what we're celebrating. 
That's what we are remembering. You know, holidays are, are a very interesting thing. And holidays actually serve a purpose. You know, you got bank holidays, right? It seems like every time you turn around and need to go to the bank, they're closed, right? Because they have holidays and they're shut down. They're bank holidays. And then they're just general holidays. I think September, I was looking up holidays. September 16th is Step Family Day. It's like, can I get out of work on that day or something? I don't know. what. There's, there's holidays galore. But you know what holiday means? It's literally holy day. Holy day. It's what holiday means. Holy day. Advent is a season leading to the holy day of Christmas. At Christmas we celebrate the visible and powerful breaking in of the kingdom of God by the coming of the King who breaks the curse and launches the last days and the final push of destroying the enemy and making His name great among all nations. See, that's what happened at the cross. Not just my salvation from hell, but the breaking in of the rule of Jesus Christ in all things. The rule of Christ and the breaking of the curse of sin. And launching the last days and the final push in destroying the enemy and taking back enemy-held territory. See, at Christmas we celebrate that it's no longer winter and never Christmas. We celebrate that it is always Christmas and winter's spell is broken. Go read the line of the witch in the wardrobe if you're confused. Children's book. The thaw is happening. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is coming and taking enemy territory with power. All things are being brought under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. Slowly but surely the thaw is happening. Enemy-held territory, taken in the fall, is being recaptured and brought back under the headship of King Jesus. Do you not understand why when we seek to do kingdom work, there's a fight? It's because we're invading long-held enemy territory. And so therefore, when we seek to bring the kingdom to bear in places where the kingdom is not, don't expect for it to go smoothly. Expect a war. Make no mistake, we will take that territory back. It belongs to Jesus. I may die in the process, and my dead body may lay on the barbed wire for somebody behind me to walk forward, but we will take it back because it's Christ's. The hostile wall is broken down. The deflector shield is down. Commence the invasion. It's time. And Christmas is here to remind us that He has come. And that the shield is down. But it's also there to remind us that Jesus is coming again. And we await and we anticipate the coming King. To finish off what He started at the cross. I wrote in my little notes here, Revelation 19. All of it. And I don't have time to go read it. But go read. Because you see, that's where we're headed. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The gathering in of all nations into the kingdom. And King Jesus returning. And He's returning on the steed of victory. And He has a white robe on Him and it's dipped in blood and it's not His blood. He died once for sin. He doesn't die again. That's the blood of His enemies. 
And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and a rod with which he will rule the nations and written on his thigh is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes to make war. That's where we're going. That's the war we're fighting. And so make no mistake, it will be accomplished. But Jesus has given us the task of advancing the kingdom through the gospel. One soul, one people group, one town at a time. Let's take a real quick look at some background to Isaiah the prophet before we jump into Isaiah 64. Because we're jumping in the end of the book. And I don't want to take for granted information on Isaiah. Because boy, Isaiah sure does mirror forth an awful lot of us today. Isaiah is preaching during Israel's decline. As they are wilting under Assyrian pressure. His audience is spiritually blind. He's Isaiah 6. The Lord gave him the commission to go preach to people who won't hear and won't see. So he's preaching to deaf and blind people spiritually. And they refuse to listen to the Lord's warning for disaster for their sin. He warns the people of Judah... Also, that their rebellion will lead to the Father's judgment as well. But he always does this beautiful thing where he promises the Lord's grace to those of his people who've remained faithful. The remnant, the elect, those who are following the Lord. He promises that the Sovereign Father would use Cyrus the Persian one day to bring his people back from exile. Isaiah moves the people toward the hope And a coming king who would truly lead his people well. But a king who wouldn't be like something they expected. Isaiah moves him toward the hope in a coming king who would be a man of sorrows. And a servant who would be pierced for their transgressions. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. The suffering servant. Isaiah points them to a king who would be a stone laid in Zion. A tested stone. A precious cornerstone. For a sure foundation. Isaiah 28, 16. He points him to a king who would be a child. He points him to a king who would be a son. For to us, a child is born. And to us, a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. Oh, that the governments of the world would rest on the shoulders of Christ. And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of His peace, there will be no end. Good news! His government is increasing. He is taking back territory and there will be no end to it. He will take it all back because it's all His. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's where Isaiah is pointing the people. The final chapters of Isaiah give us a glimpse of the full establishment of the kingdom under this king. This cornerstone, this son with the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Israel's problem is very much our problem. They trust the wrong things. They trust the wrong things. They trusted in Egypt. They trusted in other kings. Isaiah 31.1 Woe to you who go down to Egypt 
and look for your strength there. So their problem was they really trusted a political solution to the problem of their spiritual issues. So they go down to Egypt for protection. So they trust in other kings. Boy, we're good at that one, aren't we? Who's going to run in 2016 and deliver us? Nobody. I'm sorry. But our hope is not in this current system. I'm not saying abandon it. Don't hear abandon it. Don't walk away and put those words in my mouth. Just don't put your hope in that process. It's not going to happen because when Revelation 19 happens, He's going to crush this. And it will come under His rule. Does that make sense? I've totally just offended like 27 million people with that one. Not that 27 million people is going to listen. That's hyperbole. But we trust in other kings and kings aren't going to get it done. I mean, you think about Hezekiah. We think, oh, he's a good king, right? Kind of. But then he comes into his life, he gets healed, and what does he do? He shows the Babylonians everything he's got. And Isaiah comes and what would you do? I showed him everything. Mm. Yeah, they're going to take it all one day. And his response, woe is me. God, I'm sorry, let me repent. It's like, well, as long as it happens to my boys and not me. My gosh, really? That's the best we got? Yeah. They trusted in kings, and that's their problem. But then... Chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. Chapter 44, this great... God sometimes is sarcastic. There is divine sarcasm. That doesn't give me a license to use undivine sarcasm. But God is sarcastic sometimes. Read Isaiah 44. You take a stick, you burn half of it to cook your meat on. And boil your water. The other half you make into an idol. Can it hear you? That's great sarcasm. They trusted in idols. Boy, I... I have so much I want to say on idolatry here. Lest we condemn them for their idolatry, we need to go look in the mirror. Idolatry is very simply functional saviors from our perceived hell. We just don't have the agricultural problem they had, so they need Baal. They need Asherah. They need grain and crops and their cattle to multiply, and they need to have children. So they went to those sources for that. We perceive that we need stuff. So we go to busyness to gather more stuff. We're no different. They trusted in their functional saviors. Then they trusted in themselves. In chapter 22, verse 8 through 11, they depended on the work of their hands, not acknowledging the fact that the Father was the one making all things happen. Boy, that one hits hard. So I can make things happen. And sometimes we take our proactiveness and we substitute it for, well, waiting on the Lord. The reality is they trusted in themselves and they didn't stop and wait for the Lord. So what's their solution? Well, their solution is to trust the Father. That's, that's the solution. Trust the Father. Chapter 24, verse 1 to 3, the Father's people were to trust in His coming judgment. They were to trust in His judgment. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Trust in the judgment of the Lord? Yeah. Sometimes the Father takes back territory from the enemy in fatherly discipline and in judgment of those who are not His people because of their sin. So they were to trust in His judgment. They were to trust that He was providentially working in history to bring about His ends. They were to trust His judgment. 
We're to put our trust in His judgment, even if we feel the residual effects of it, as some of those who were not guilty felt when the Lord sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians. For example, see Jeremiah. So sometimes we may feel the residual effects of the Father's work in history, but we're just like Jeremiah, faithful prophet, obeyed the Lord. And he's in shackles headed to Babylon. Father's people are to trust in Him even in His judgment of things around them. And then finally, before we launch into our text, the Father's people are to trust in the Father's coming salvation. And this is where we're going to pick up our text for this Sunday of Advent. They're to trust in His coming salvation. Isaiah 64, 1-9. We're to trust in the Father's coming salvation. We are to hope in the middle of difficulty. So I ask this question. For them, for us, what does it look like to trust in the Lord's coming salvation? What does this text tell us? It looks like to trust, to walk in an active belief that He is bringing His salvation. And what does it look like to hope in the middle of darkness and difficulty? Well, we've got a few points that I help, that I hope will help us to do that in this season of Advent. How do we hope? In the midst of difficulty. And how do we trust in the Lord's coming salvation? Number one. Isaiah 64, 1-3. We long for Jesus to display His personal and effectual presence. We long for Jesus to display His personal and effectual presence. That doesn't sound very tangible or practical, does it? And you know what? It's not. Lest we buy into the lie of naturalism that everything has to have a five-step process to some successful completion, let's stop and look at the text for a second. Isaiah 64, 1-3. And by the way, this is in light of 63, 15-19. When you go back up to the previous chapter, what precedes these verses is this prayer for mercy, this looking at the Lord and begging for help. They say, look, this is verse 15 of chapter 63, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? Where, Where's your power? Where, Where is it? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. I don't feel like you care. You are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servant, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down our sanctuary, your sanctuary. We become like those over whom you've never ruled. Like those who are not called by your name. You feel their desperate plight. We feel like we're not your people. And this is where we pick up this longing to, for Him to display His personal and effectual presence. And by the way, I worded it this way on purpose. Because I think the reality is for many of us who get caught up in just doing life, we don't really want Jesus to return until we've tasted a few more delicacies. 
Maybe our longing for Jesus to return isn't thick enough. It's an addition to everything else we're passionate about. We've got 20 passions that are greater than Jesus and His kingdom. Oh yeah, Jesus is coming. I'm excited about that. Open up a few presents. Have a great day. I guess my question is, do we really long for the kingdom? Are we hungry to taste the rule of Christ reconciling all things back to Himself? They were. They were. We don't even know if we're your people. We have the marks. We're supposed to belong to Abraham. And it's like you don't care, Father. And then chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood. And the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things, things we didn't look for. That's cool. You came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. You see, we're not to long for the systems of the world system that has fallen and broken. And we're not to long that somehow they'll start working better. That's not the longing of the kingdom mind. Oh Lord, make this world system get better. Is that the longing of the Christian? No. We long for the kingdom to come. We long that He would rend, tear. The word means to tear the heavens open and He would slip down and come personally to be here. And, and notice, I, I said his, his personal but His tangible presence. His effectual presence. Why? Because when He comes... What happens? The mountains quake. In other words, things happen when you do them. We want you to do this. Tear the heavens, come down, make the mountains shake. Kind of like when wood burns when fire is put on it. You do that. You see the illustration? You put fire on wood, it burns. Jesus Come so powerfully that you bring to effect your kingdom. And we'll stand back and watch and give you praise. That's the longing of their heart. That is to be the longing of our heart this Advent season. We long for the kingdom to come. And Jesus taught us like this, did He not? Matthew 6.33, it's a child's memory verse. And you have a song to it. Seek ye first. You go, go old King James, right? Because that's how the song goes. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In other words, don't be like the unregenerate people looking for their food and their clothing and their housing and all the stuff. Don't look for that. Look for my rule to rip the heavens and come down and quake the mountains and cause stuff to work. Look for that. My righteousness. And I'll take care of the stupid residual things that you bow down to. We're to long for the kingdom to come. We long for the visible, powerful, tangible reign of Jesus Christ to be manifested. And didn't Jesus teach us to pray for that? Right? Matthew 6, 9 to 10. How often do I start my prayers asking Father for stuff? Jesus taught us to start out. Father in heaven, make your name great. Hallow your name. 
Give me my food and my clothing and my job and my stuff. Forgive me my sin. Did I miss something? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth as it's done in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. That we would pray and seek that the kingdom would come. Bring your rule, Jesus. Come down. Rip the heavens. Return. Jesus, now if you don't take this and work it, it's toast. We are to long for the effectual and very present work of Christ. They prayed that He would come, make the mountain shake, Cause stuff to happen. Verse 2 gives us the point. That you would make your name known to your adversaries. And that the nations might tremble at your presence. Do we pray like that? Lord, be so powerfully at work in the church in Rome, Georgia. That the nations take note of your presence. That's pretty wild, huh? Jesus, be so powerfully at work here. That the nations perk up and take notice. That's how we are to long. That should be the desire of our heart. And then we long, verse 3, for the surprise work of King Jesus. This is beautiful. Verse 3. We long for you to rend the heavens, come down, that the mountains quake, as when fire kindles brushwood, causes water to boil. Make your name known, that the nations tremble at your presence. Verse 3. When you did awesome things that we did not look for. You know how cool it would be to live in this glorious sense of expectation of the kingdom coming and Him doing things that just make us have that Christmas morning surprise? (gasps) We're watching Christmas Story, which is like the best Christmas movie ever the other night. It's how we celebrate the coming in of the season. I love Christmas Story. It's amazing. I have great lines. I'm probably tweeting out lines from Christmas Story from now till Christmas Day. It's beautiful. And what happens, right? Ralphie, we think it's over, right? And he didn't get his Red Rider carbine, right? With the with the stock and the compass in it and all that cool stuff. And you shoot your eye out, kid, right? He didn't get it, or he thought. And his dad, you guys know the story. Hey, what's over that behind the desk? And he he goes over and he rips it open and there it is, that glorious surprise. I wasn't, I, I thought for sure you got to my teacher, you got to Santa Claus. It wasn't gonna happen. And dad, this is amazing. And he goes and shoots his eye out. What a great story. What a great story. But he said, we want you to do awesome things, things we didn't look for. We weren't even looking for that. We were here and you did this and now we have like 24 million reasons to give you praise. Do things, be so awesome that you surprise us with glorious, fun surprises. How fun that we get to long for the surprise work of King Jesus. Lord, I think you want us to do this. That's pretty clear. So we're going to just put our nose down. We're going to do this work. But would you do some things that make us go, wow, I wasn't looking for that. That's fun. We should long for the surprise work of King Jesus. We come down and make the mountains quake at your presence. We should long for the coming of the kingdom over the adoptive and foster kids of our town. We should long that the nations would worship. We should long that the unreached in Floyd County would be reached. We should long for the coming work of King Jesus. Number two. 
Number two, we worship Jesus for His work on our behalf as we wait in faith. Verse 4 through the first part of verse 5. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who proactively go out and make things happen. That's how I'd like to read that, right? No. The God beside you who acts for those who wait for Him. You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. We learn here in verse 4 that the Lord God Himself acts on behalf of those who are waiting for Him. Let me break, let me break your heart. God does not help those who help themselves. Do you know, according to George Barna, a few years ago, and this statistic may be old now, I couldn't find an updated one, but Americans, when polled, that was the most quoted Bible verse. Not joking. That ain't a Bible verse. That is a lie. It's a satanic lie. God does not help those who help themselves. As a matter of fact, you'll find the exact opposite. The Father helps those who shut it down when there's nothing they can do and they wait for Him to act. Go read the Psalms. The Psalms just... I remember growing up as a kid in America, you can't help it. You think American things, right? And I quoted that my whole life. Well, God helps those who help themselves. My gosh, let's go get it. And that's kind of my bent. I'm a proactive starter. I'm just, I want to go figure stuff out. That's the way I'm wired. And I don't think that's evil. But it has its place. And its place is sitting in submission to the command to wait for me. You see this in the life of Saul, right? In the Old Testament. Samuel. To Saul, wait for me. Wait, Saul. And what happened? The battle was coming on. Men were deserting to the other side. Others were going home and hiding themselves in the cave. And what did Saul do? Bring the sacrifice to me. I don't know where Samuel's at. Made the sacrifice. And you guys know the story. What happens next? Saul, uh, Samuel shows up. What was Saul supposed to do? It looked like he was doing right. Let's worship. Well, how bad can that be? Well... It's what Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. It's not your job, Saul. The kingdom's been taken from you and given to someone better than you. Jesus works on behalf of those who wait for him. So we worship Jesus for his work on our behalf as we wait for him. Jesus meets those who joyfully work righteousness because they know how the Father works. So this Advent season, wait for Him. Listen for Him. Pray. Listen, I'm convinced the very essence of following Jesus is hearing and obeying. It's that simple. Hear and obey. Worship the Lord Jesus this Advent season for His work on your behalf. Wait for Him and understand that He works for those who work righteousness. Number three. We acknowledge our sin and we seek repentance. We acknowledge our sin and seek repentance. Five, the second part of verse five through verse seven and then verse nine. Behold, you're angry and we sinned. Now, it's easy to read that and miss sort of the point. It's not like you were angry and your anger caused us to sin. 
You have to read it with the proper understanding of the rest of the text. Behold, you were angry. We sinned. In other words, you're angry and it's because we sinned. That's the thrust. You're angry it's because it's our fault. It's, it's not you. We want you to come in power. Rip the heavens. Come down. Make the mountains quake. Make the nations know that you're God. But you're angry because we sinned. You get the feel? You were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time. And shall we be saved? That's a confessional statement. You don't, we don't deserve to be saved. We've become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And in our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. What a statement that our sin, our uncleanness, it pulls us away. It takes us away. Like a a leaf floating away. Our sin pulls us away. There's no one who calls on your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you're hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Verse 9. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. We acknowledge our sin and seek repentance. We humbly acknowledge our sin. Advent is a season to do that Psalm 139 reflection. Lord, reveal to me the places where I presumptuously rebel against you. It's not so much the things I know that are sin that I keep coming back to as much as the things that I just assume are okay. We humbly acknowledge our sin. David even prayed in the Psalms, Lord, let not sins of presumption have dominion over me. We humbly acknowledge that our good deeds are still not enough. Man, this Advent season, no better time. Let the gospel melt over you and say, Lord, even on my best day, my best deeds are still like a polluted garment. I'm still filthy in my own deeds. I can't even get my motives right. We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge that our deeds aren't good enough. We humbly acknowledge our sin is killing us. We humbly acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and failing to call on your name and trusting in you, Lord. We humbly appeal to the gospel truth that the Father not take into account our sin, but take into account the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our place for our sin and that we are His people called by His name. So take Advent as an opportunity to confess sin, repent, and let the gospel reality of Christ's death in our place for our sin wreck our soul for the good. What are some truths we need to remember about our sin? I think I added this little section here because I feel like for many of us, I don't know about you, I still wrestle with believing the justifying work of the gospel. I'm so broken at such a deep level that I still look at negative things that happen and wonder if God's just not getting even. You know? Even on this side of salvation. And I hope I, well, actually, I hope I'm alone. I hope you don't do that. I, and, I, and my hunch is many of us do that. What are some things we need to remember as we wrestle with our sin? Because I think it's easy for us to come and try to repent of sin. And you know what? Jesus taught us don't pray like the pagans who think they'll be heard for their many words, right? They think they need to get 
this deity's attention by saying it a lot of times because he can't hear. And Jesus goes, don't pray like that. I know what you need before you ask. So pray like this, right? And so we come and say, Lord, forgive me my sin. Lord, forgive me my sin. Forgive me my sin. Like 23 times later, we're like, I'm not sure you heard because I was sort of fading out, going to sleep. So Lord, forgive me my sins again. And we, listen, let me give you some things to think through as we try to repent, confess, repent. Remember the gospel. Our legal standing before God is unchanged when we sin. As followers of Jesus Christ, Romans 8 and 1 is true. We're not condemned. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Our legal standing with God is unchanged. Romans 6.23, we remember our salvation is not based on the merit system. I didn't earn it. It's a free gift. We remember 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 21 that we are new creations and we're made righteous in Christ. So as we come to recognize our sin, let us not forget that Jesus paid for that sin in full. Which becomes a means by which we can shove it to the side and walk in holiness. Because we realize the kindness of God that will lead us to repentance. Something to remember though is that our fellowship with the Father is disrupted. And sometimes our Christian life is damaged. Ephesians 4.30 tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So when I sin presumptuously or on purpose, I grieve the Spirit of God. So we remember we're not condemned. But we also remember that because we have a relationship with the Father, we grieve Holy Spirit when we rebel against Him. Hebrews 12, 6, quoting Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, the Father disciplines those He loves, recognizing that the Father may spank me because He loves me, not because He's condemning me. Our legal standing with God is unchanged, but we can wreck our fellowship with God and our Christian witness can be damaged, so therefore we seek repentance. And live under the glorious truth of the gospel. Number four. Final point. We submit and walk in obedience. Isaiah 64 verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. This Advent season, take it as an opportunity to submit and walk in obedience. It's a beautiful picture here that you are our father. But I'm the clay and you're the potter. I think we have a tendency in the West because of the way we just breathe the air that's around us and the culture that's around us. We have this idea that somehow we are truly the captain of our our fate and the master of our soul. And the reality is we were created by God for God. And we recognize as His followers we are His children. This is very good news. But we are the clay and He is the potter and we are the work of His hand. In other words, we submit and we walk in obedience. You know, every single one of us in this room were created for a good purpose. Josh preached on this passage a few weeks ago, Ephesians 2.10. We are His workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What better thing can happen this Advent season is to be given the gift of the Spirit to see how He has shaped me and molded me and to walk in it with freedom and joy. Every single one of you in this room were made for a specific purpose. And He gave you good works to do in Christ. And Jonathan was saying it this morning as we were meeting as pastors. There are many tracks 
there isn't the one track of being a pastor and that's effective ministry. No. Lord, no. But some of you were made to be lawyers. Joseph Colston, God made that boy to be an attorney. He tried to do ministry and thank God that God is sovereign because He shut him down. Sent him home from seminary. Praise God. Because now he's an attorney doing what he was made to do. Some of you, God made to be an attorney. Don't fight that. Receive that good work and change the domain of law for the glory of Jesus Christ. Some of you made to be doctors. Some of you made to be builders. Some of you were made to be whatever. Man, what a cool thing to recognize that because the kingdom is coming and all this thing is underneath the headship of Christ, that whatever He's made you to do is to be redeemed for the glory of Jesus and you are to be salt and light in that domain. He is the potter. You are the clay. Submit to Him. You talk about a life fulfilling. When a man made to wire things, wires them for the glory of Jesus. Not tries to get rid of it so he can go be a pastor. This Advent season, submit. Submit to King Jesus. Wait on Him. Repent of sin. Long for His appearing. As we launch into this Advent season, I pray that this will ring in your ears. And that this season will take on a a new feel, a new twist for you as we long for the second coming of Christ. A little Revelation 19 reality. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are good and you do good to us, your people. You are king and there is no other. You are God and there is no other. And we, we worship you today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would remove any barrier to your worship today. That there would be nothing and no effect of the evil one to keep your people from singing praise to you. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd remove any barrier from your people today seeking repentance. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak to every heart in this room and that you would dig deep into those hidden recesses and you would bring things to the surface and you would deal with them and clean them out. Make Jesus big and give us great joy and unity in the middle of all that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fight against the works of the evil one to, to, to steal and rob us of this season and replace it with an inferior joy. I pray you would cause us to strive for the superior, lasting, eternal joy of your kingdom. I pray you do war for us and win that battle. Make this a season of absolute hope when it seems like there is none. And make this a season of trusting in your salvation as we long for your kingdom. Would you please do that today? We are yours. We are the work of your hands. You are our Father. Be the potter. And help us to submit to being the clay. So that you'd be glorified and we'd find our joy in you.